hear the words preached by Peter to a gathered crowd outside the temple in Acts 3. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs to the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amanda. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all. Um, my wife, Becca, she went to Surprise along with her sisters. Her parents had their 50th anniversary yesterday. So she's in Overland Park, Kansas. And um, my kids and I are here. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We made it to church today. Everybody has clothes on. How about that? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We pray, open our ears to hear your Holy Spirit speaking to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been going through this We Believe series, we are talking about the objective truths of Christianity, the doctrines, the things that our faith is based on, things that are not based on opinion or man's view, but are true regardless of what anyone says. And today we're talking about Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. As Amanda read the text earlier, there's three things that I want to highlight today from Acts chapter 3, verses 13 through 26. Three things here. First of all, that Jesus is God's plan A. It's God's plan A. Secondly, that there is a cultural response to Jesus as God's plan A. But then there's the correct response. Jesus is God's plan A. The cultural response, the correct response. We'll start with our first point, God's plan A. Here's what verse 13 says. How do we know that Jesus is God's plan A? Verse 13 says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. What is Peter saying? This is Peter preaching. He's just healed this man uh, who was a blind beggar. And now this crowd is gathered. 
and they're trying to figure out what is going on. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying, the same God who made a covenant with your forefathers, with our forefathers, Jesus being a Jewish believer, the same God is the one that sent this man Jesus. Now, these are men and women who would have been present when Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, which is where this is taking place. Very plainly, Peter is saying the same God of the Old Testament is the God of what is happening here. What God started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is fulfilling here. There's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is this second century heretic named Marcion, who, when he looked at Scripture, he said that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. He said that the God of the Old Testament was a God who was evil. I mean, look at all of the judgment and all of the wicked things and all these bad things and people are dying and all this. And so the God of the New Testament is a different God. That was Marcion. That was a heretic. Now, Hopefully none of us would ever say that, but perhaps you viewed Scripture in that way. What's going on in the Old Testament that it's so seemingly different than the New? Well, first of all, Peter's saying there's continuity. In fact, that continuity is in the person of Jesus. The New Testament is not a replacement of what happened before. It is a fulfillment. Verse 18 says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer he thus fulfilled. In other words, the prophets, they're doing this. They're not saying first down, by the way. They're pointing to Jesus. All of the prophets of the Old Testament, they're pointing. He's coming. He's coming. Uh, there was this publicity stunt that um, in college uh, from my Christian fellowship there was this guy who was this huge, huge guy. He could like crush full cans of soda barehanded and blow up those hot, you know, the hot water balloon things. He could, you know, explode them just by blowing, do all these feats of strength. His name was Big Tommy. And so um, rather than putting flyers, you remember those things? Uh, rather than putting flyers everywhere on campus, we decided to take sticky notes different colors, and write, Big Tommy is coming. And we posted them everywhere. I mean, in the trays, in the cafeteria, in the stalls, in the bathroom, as you would unroll the toilet paper, in the classrooms, on whiteboards, on blackboards, and everywhere on campus. All it said was, Big Tommy is coming, and it was successful. The campus was astir. Who is Big Tommy? It made it into the newspaper. Is this Big Tommy? Is this Big Tommy? Is this thing that happened? We were saying, he's coming. And he did come, and, and it, was, it was great. But the point is, it was pointing to someone who was coming. And that is what Peter is saying all of the prophets are doing. They're pointing. They're saying, there's one that's coming. They all testify to Jesus. There's continuity here. Verse 22, Moses says, said, this is what Moses said. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Peter's quoting Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses pointed forward to a prophet like himself, one that they would all need to listen to. And in verse 24, it says, Peter's saying in his sermon, this is him preaching the gospel, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, the first prophet, son of Hannah, 
first and second Samuel, and all those who came after him also proclaim these days. The prophets, they're all pointing. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Jesus is God's plan A. He wasn't plan B. As a child, I was told this. I don't even remember by whom. But, you know, the Old Testament, God had a plan, but it didn't work out, and so then he brought Jesus. That's not true. In fact, that can't be true because that would mean that God has failed. He failed in his first plan. But no, brothers and sisters, God, he never fails. Jesus was God's plan all along. From all of human history, all the way back in the garden, in fact, from all eternity. Jesus is God's plan A. Well, if Jesus is God's plan A, why did the Jews reject him? I mean, if he's the plan A, why, why opposition? Why crucify him? This is God's plan A. We're seeking God. God's plan A comes. Why reject him? How does that happen? Our second point, the cultural response. The cultural response. How do the Jews end up rejecting Jesus if he is God's plan A? It's because they responded to him based on their cultural view. He was not what they were expecting. And therefore, they rejected him as a culture. Every culture rejects Jesus. Which, by the way, the most important question in all of human existence is, who is Jesus? Every culture rejects him. How do we know this? Well, first, let's see, how do the Jews reject him? In verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy, righteous, holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. Do you see what Peter is saying? Do you see what he's saying? The God of the patriarchs, he raised up Jesus. And you destroyed him. You delivered him over to death. Peter makes one of the punchiest, most powerful juxtapositions in all of Scripture. Every time I read it, it makes me pause. Every time I read this. It makes me pause. You asked for a murderer, but you killed the author of life. Think about that. They asked for one who brought death. They killed the one who brings life. It shows the, 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 the depravity, the darkness of their hearts and of our hearts, because we reject Jesus just the same way. You would think that because Jesus is God's plan, the Jews would receive him, but they rejected him. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says that the gospel of Jesus Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly 
to the Greeks. Both cultures, the Jews and the Greeks, or the Jews and the Gentiles, the predominant cultures of the ancient world that we see in the scripture, they both rejected Jesus. For the Jews, it was because he was a stumbling block to them. Their culture, they were looking for someone else. They were looking for something else. They were looking for a Messiah who would be the warrior king, who would be powerful and valiant and take territory from the Jewish enemies, the Romans, and establish a political kingdom. That's what they were looking for. But what did God do? God sent the Messiah, who was not a warrior king. He was a suffering king. He wasn't strong and powerful and valiant. He was meek and gentle. His kingdom wasn't a political one. It was one of, not of this world. He didn't take territory from the enemies of the Jews. He took territory from the enemy of God's people, Satan. That is who God sent. That is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that is what the Jews rejected, the Gentiles rejected, and our culture rejects as well. You and I have we've rejected Jesus in so many ways. Because he's not what we're looking for. We live in a culture where there's other values, and he just doesn't fit them. It's common to say, for example, that Jesus, oh, he's a good moral teacher. Or to say, you know, maybe he was a good prophet. He loves everybody, but he would never demand anything from anyone. He would never judge anyone. He would never condemn anyone. Why does our culture say that? Because we value love. Now, love is not bad. Of course, it is good. We say things like in our culture that love is love. As Rebecca McLaughlin would say, that's the secular creed, a statement of the secular creed, that love is love. You say, well, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that? Well, here's the problem. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, St. John's saying, so he's talking about in 1 John. St. John's saying that God is love, which is what 1 John says, has long been balanced in my mind against the remark of a modern author, M. Denis de Rougemont. The remark is, love ceases to be a demon only when he ceases to be a, a god. I'll read that again. Love ceases to be a demon only when he ceases to be a god, which of course can be restated in the form, begins to be a demon the moment he begins to be a god. This balance seems to me an indispensable safeguard if we ignore it. The truth that God is love may slyly come to mean for us the converse that love is God. Do you see what he's saying? Do you understand what he's saying? What he's saying is, if love becomes a god to you, it becomes a demon. If love is so preeminent that is the end-all, be-all, it itself becomes a god, it becomes a demon. Our culture says love is love, but really what our culture means is love is God, and everything else should be defined by that. C.S. Lewis, what does this all mean? He goes on to say, every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice 
tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims. It insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful, even meritorious. What does that mean? Well, some would say, the Jesus I serve, he would never condemn anyone. He would never hurt or harm or offend anyone. He would never send someone to hell. He'd never call me to confront anyone. Why? Why do we say that? Why do people say that? Perhaps you've said that. Why do you say that? Because in our culture, love is a God, and we define love as never causing pain to another. Why? Why is not causing pain so important to us? It's because love is actually a surface idol, but autonomy is the idol beneath. Above all things, we want to have control. We want to have control over our lives. We want the freedom to make our own decisions, to choose our own identity, to have power to be yourself, to love who you want, to love what you want, to do what you want. That is what our culture tells you. Therefore, if you're not careful, you want a Jesus who promotes your autonomy, not one who infringes upon it. And therefore, you reject the Jesus of Scripture. You don't want a Jesus that takes autonomy away from you. You reject the Jesus of Scripture for an Americanized cultural Jesus who promotes your personal autonomy. And you make statements like, the Jesus I serve would never do X. He would never judge people. He would never condemn them. And therefore, if, that is your, if that's you, your discipleship will be based on a Jesus who promotes your autonomy, never calls you to give anything up, never calls you to die to yourself, and would never allow you to experience pain. That couldn't be his will. Why? Because this is the cultural response to the Jesus of the Bible. The problem with that whole setup is that it will destroy you. It's going to end up destroying you. If that is your view of Jesus, it will destroy you for a few reasons. One, because it will promote you to give your life to things that can't support you. But perhaps even more importantly, that Jesus, the one who never crosses your will, the one who promotes your autonomy, he never existed. He's not real. He's a figment of our cultural imagination. There's no power in him to deliver. There's no power to save, no power to transform. And the man in the text, the one who was healed, that Jesus couldn't heal him. Thankfully, point three, there's the correct response. Peter tells the crowd, you've had the cultural response to Jesus and you've rejected him, but he tells them the good news. You can correctly respond. There is grace to respond, to receive, to acknowledge, to come under the lordship of this Jesus. 
you can experience the power in the name of this Jesus. You can experience the deliverance that comes from the Son of God if you have the correct response to God's plan A. This Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You can experience the true love of this Jesus, the one of whom he is a part of the Trinity, which in the Trinity, God is love. And where there is an absence of love being God. What is the correct response? It's two things Peter says. It's repent and to listen to this Jesus. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus Peter is saying, repent of your sins, repent of your self-righteousness, repent of your wrong view of the Messiah, your wrong view of Jesus Christ. Turn and serve the true Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible actually does make demands of people. He actually does judge people. Verse 22, Moses said, the, God, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother's. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. What is Peter saying? This Jesus is the one that you need to listen to. And if you don't, you'll be destroyed. In fact, actually, the things that you live for will destroy you. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus of the Bible does make demands of you. And he will judge you and me. Why? Why? Because he's the Son of God. He is God. But Peter is saying, don't be destroyed. Instead, listen to this Jesus. Why should we listen to this Jesus? Well, think about it. This Jesus, he suffered for you. He is the only one who has ever offered you a love with no strings attached. He's the only one who has ever been able to love you without needing anything from you. He is the only one who has fully given sacrificial love. Every other love that you encounter will take something back from you. He's the one who suffered for you. He bore the punishment of your sin. He died on the cross for you. You can trust him. And therefore, if he ever tells you anything that crosses your will or pushes back your autonomy, it's for your own good. Because he truly does love you. And so, there, so therefore, you should listen to him. He brings you a love that your autonomy could never find for you. You never could. Peter finishes his sermon and he says, You are the sons, in verse 25, of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, God having raised up his servant, 
sent him to you first to bless you, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Think about that. What is Peter saying? He's basically summarizing everything that I've said. Peter is saying, the God who made a covenant with Abraham is the God who sent Jesus. And that covenant that God would me that he made with Abraham, that through Abraham, I will bless, through you, Abraham, I will bless all of the nations, all the families of the earth through you. Peter is saying that that blessing, he takes that word and he's saying that blessing is that you would turn from your wickedness. That's the blessing. That is the blessing, that you would turn from your wrong view, your cultural view of the Messiah, your cultural view of Jesus, that you would turn from holding on to your autonomy and that you would turn to this Jesus. That is the blessing. That's the blessing. That is the fulfillment of the blessing that God made to Abraham. That we would recognize Jesus is the plan A of God and always has been for all of eternity. That we would recognize that we have a tendency to have a cultural response, but that instead we should have the correct response and repent and listen to this Jesus. He's God's plan A. What does this all mean for us? Here's what it means. If Jesus is God's plan A, then God has never failed. Rather, Jesus is God's plan A. Therefore, God has never failed, and therefore, he will never fail you. He will never fail you. He has never failed. His plan of redemption has never failed. His plan for your life will never fail. As long as you desire to serve him, his plan will never fail. As long as you surrender to him, his plan for you will never fail. I used to think that God's plan, figuring out God's plan, his will for my life, was trying, have you ever tried to fly a drone? Those things are crazy. Like to try to land one of those things on anything, it's like, this is ridiculous. At least the ones that I've played with. Maybe it's just they're not expensive enough. But I used to think that trying to figure out God's plan was like trying to land a drone on this podium and I'm standing 100 yards away. Okay, let me get it. Oh, I'm going to miss it. Oh, I'm off to the left. Oh, shoot. You know, am I, did I get high enough? Did I get far enough? You know, I used to think, oh, it's just this, this thing. It's, got, it's so small and there's so much room to miss it but there's only this little room to hit it. But the reality is, I'm not the one in control. God is the one in control. And his plan never fails. He will never fail you. He will never fail me. Secondly, are you serving a cultural Jesus? Or are you serving the crucified Jesus? Are you serving a Jesus that promotes your autonomy, that supports all of your ideas, that never pushes back, never crosses your will, never disagrees with you? Or are you serving the Jesus to whom the scripture demands that we listen and obey? 
who sometimes calls us to do what we don't want, who sometimes asks of us what we don't want to give, who sometimes calls us to give up things that we don't want to release, but he does it for our good. If you're willing to follow that Jesus and turn from every other cultural idea of what Jesus should be like, then and only then can you experience his real power, his transforming power, the power that is at work in believers. Then and only then can you truly experience freedom, not in your autonomy. You will have bondage, but only in this Jesus can you have real freedom. Only in this Jesus will you have real love, real sacrificial, self-giving love. Every other way will leave you bankrupt. It's only in this Jesus that you could have true forgiveness. Why? Because he's the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for stirring our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would press this word deep into our hearts, that you would challenge us where we may serve a cultural Jesus and call us to repent and serve you instead. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.